Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September 2016. The following presentation is by Drew Gray, entitled Policing Whitechapel, the Role of the Thames Police Court in the 1880s. Mr. Gray is the author of the book London's Shadows, The Dark Side of the Victorian City, which I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with. As with all of the talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from all of the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 151, and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel and Drew Gray. The reports of the time, of course, Drew does this wonderful blog as well on the police courts, which I understand is going to be the subject of his talk today. So without further ado, can we please put our hands together and give a big warm welcome for Drew Gray. Thank, thank you, Richard. We never get that sort of, um, academics never get that sort of bigging up at the beginning of a conference speech. I think Charlotte would probably testify to that. So I hope I don't fall flat afterwards, yeah. Um, can you all hear me? I'm, I'm not used to using a microphone. Brilliant, okay, can you hear the back? Um, and I'm making sure this actually goes along, but um, that's what I'll do. Yeah, perfect, okay. I'll go back. Thank you. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about the police courts of, of London, which were filled in the 19th century with all sorts of flotsam and jetsam swept from the streets by London's police. Many of these were petty criminals, opportunistic thieves, drunks, brawlers and wife beaters. There were petty fraudsters, disorderly prostitutes, juvenile tearaways and refractory paupers. Most of these were dealt with most of these were dealt with summarily by the presiding magistrates. They were fined, they were sent to prison for short periods. Some, whose offences were a little more serious, or who opted to take their chances in front of a jury, were um, sent up for, and fully committed to trial by the sitting magistrate. And this often meant that they were taken up to somewhere like the Old Bailey. <coughs> Others were remanded or they were bailed while more evidence or more witnesses were sought so they could, the magistrate could make a proper adjudication. All of this was reported in varying degrees of detail by the Capital's newspapers. Reporters and editors selected unusual, unusual cases, heartwarming tales, um, or made a point of detailing particularly heinous or topical crimes. Charles Dickens, of course, started his writing career as just such a court reporter, and you can clearly evidence in a lot of his novels, particularly something like Oliver Twist. But it's also fair to say that the reporting of these courts was often unrepresentative of the largely mundane nature of these busy urban courtrooms. I've now told you this could be really dull, this, isn't it? Because there's largely mundane stuff going on. I realise that. At Thames, which is the main subject of my talk, or Worship Street, both of which these, these police courts serve the east end of London, or indeed at Lambeth, 
which covered the sprawling desperate poverty of, of the borough, a Monday morning would see 40 or 50 persons before the beak, before the magistrate. Many of them had spent a night or two in police custody um, or in the crowded waiting cells at the courtrooms. The newspapers, though, only chose one or two cases from each court and only half a dozen or so courts each day. So we should be wary of how much we read into this. This is partly about how we use sources. So in this short paper, um, I would like to offer a more nuanced analysis of the operation of the capital's police courts, with particular emphasis on Thames, as it's the court for which we have decent records for the 1880s. I'll look at how these courts worked, who went there, why, and what sort of justice, I use that term quite loosely, was meted out. I'll also some, say something about the variety of sources that are available to historians who might like to explore this further if, if it's something that you guys might want to do. But before I want to go on, I want to give you a flavour of the reportage, because I think in itself that tells us something about the Victorians' fascination with crime and punishment. A fascination that encompasses the most serious crimes of the day, I mean, they loved their murder news, um, all the way down to the everyday. These stories reveal more about life in the capital than simply crime and punishment. For me, it's the stories behind the arrival of so many people in court that's interesting. For the last six months, I've been writing, as, as, as was mentioned, a daily blog, taking the reports of the papers to dip into the courts, just like my Victorian ancestors might have done. So I've called the blog the police magistrate, um, so take this case, which is from 1852, from August in 1852. A young lad brought in by a Whitechapel shopkeeper for stealing a kettle. Robert Burns, presumably no relation to the great poet, was a slightly made, delicate boy of 12. His nose was broken. In fact, it was so bent, it was almost lying flat against his cheek. He came before the Worship Street magistrate, accused of taking an iron tea kettle to the value of one shilling and threepence. The court was Worship Street in Shoreditch, um, and in 1889, some of the area it covered was amalgamated to create the North London Police Court. There are no surviving records of the Worship Street Court, so we were reliant entirely on newspapers. Anyway, back to the case of the stolen kettle. Mr Cash, who owned an ironmonger's shop on Whitechapel High Street, was alerted to the robbery by a neighbour and said he chased a small group of boys down the street until he caught up with them. Most of them scarpered, but he caught hold of Robert, who was clutching the kettle, wrapped in an apron. In court, Mr. Mr. Dine Court, who was the, the sitting magistrate, turned to the boy and asked him what he had to say for himself. Robert said he hadn't stolen it. The other lads had just asked him to hold it. Um, but the moment I got it, he said. They both went off very quick, so I had to go quick to catch up with them. <laughs> Dine Court, who was also a magistrate sitting at Clerkenwell, I found down at Westminster, had heard this sort of lame defence time and time again, and was clearly unimpressed. He took a moment to inquire whether, whether Robert wished to be dealt with summarily, or preferred a jury trial, as was his right. The boy hesitated before saying he was content to be judged there and then. A full trial might have landed the boy with a more serious sentence, as police magistrates were relatively limited in the penalties they could hand out. Dyne Court was about to pass sentence when the shopkeeper intervened. 
Mr. Cash said he had no great. I'll put this up, sorry. Yeah. Mr. 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 Cash said he had no great desire to prosecute this boy, but robberies of the shops on the street was, were so often carried out by lads like him and his friends that he felt obliged to do something about it. Cash was probably more aware of the realities of life in the East End than, he, than the magistrate, um, and though he might have been frustrated at this petty pilferage that was continual, he could also see how desperate the boy's situation was. I doubt he wanted to be the instrument of further pain. So Mr. Dyncourt turned once more to Robert, asking him what his father and mother did for a living. I haven't got no father or mother, Robert replied. His dad had left to go to sea, and his mother had thought him dead. She had later died a year later of, t of typhus. He had no siblings, only myself, he said. So how did he keep himself in food and shelter then, the magistrate asked. I take carts and hold horses. I run errands. When I can't get nothing like that to do, I pick up bones in the street and sell them to the rag shops. I sleep where I can, sometimes in sheds and stables, but now I'm sleeping at a place by a man, let by a man named Howard. He had been employed, he said, um, by a coal merchant, but the man had beaten him so badly that he ran away. So we've got real shades of Oliver Twist in this. It was a sorry, sad tale, but there was more. How had he got such a dreadful wound to his nose, the magistrate wanted to ask. And I think this is quite revealing as well. Why, well, I was sleeping under a penthouse at Houndsditch, and I had nowhere else to go, when a city, a city policeman woke me up with three or four blows with the back of his truncheon, on my back with his truncheon. And on jumping up and turning round, he struck me again with his truncheon, and it came across the bridge of my nose. Such a dreadful blow that the blood poured out, and it never stopped bleeding from half past one in the morning till half past eight at night. That had happened three months previously, but the nose still hurt. And we must assume that he hadn't bothered to get medical um, help for this, because unless he visited the workhouse infirmary, infirmary, that was likely to cost him. The magistrate was astonished. Do you seriously mean to tell me that you have got your living that way for the whole of the last 12 months? Yes, sir. I couldn't live any other way. The justice paused, and instead of making a decision today, he would call for more witnesses to test the veracity of the boy's story, and he sent him to the house of detention to await his judgment. Now, Robert's story was probably not atypical of hundreds of thousands of street urchins in Victorian London. Poverty was rife, opportunities limited, brutality common, and death an everyday occurrence. Dickens is Oliver Oliver Twist ends up in the capital after his escape from the clay poles, only to find himself in the less secure and more dangerous environment of the Great Wen, and fairly quickly in front of a police court magistrate for his role in the attempted robbery of Mr Brownlow. Dickens must have seen dozens of Roberts pass through the police courts with very similar cases of abuse, abandonment, misfortune and despair. So, exactly what did these courts do and how did they operate? Who did they serve? The people of London or the authorities that were tasked with keeping law and order? So over the rest of this talk, I'll try and unpack the answers to these questions and show how the police courts played a crucial role in the everyday lives of millions of Lond Londoners. Thank you. The central character in the police court was a magistrate. Most of my previous historical research has, has focused on the role of the magistrate or the justice of the peace in the 18th century. 
My PhD thesis studied the summary courts of the City of London, and I argued that these served to both control the population and regulate everyday life. However, it was also possible to argue, with certain limits, that these were courts that were used by ordinary people. Overwhelmingly, the courts dealt with petty violence, drunkenness, pilferage and minor theft. The city magistrates, headed up by the Lord Mayor, dispensed justice with little or no supervision or regulation by anyone and used the summary process as a filtration system for the jury courts at the, at the Old Bailey. In starting to look at the police courts of the 1800s, particularly the later 1800s, I've been asking myself whether these operated in exactly the same way. One of the longest running and most important debates among historians of crime has been the role of the criminal justice system in, our, in, in, in society. In 1975, um, Douglas Hay argued that the 18th century criminal justice system, which was a system of hanging a few select criminals each sessions, was part of a ruling class conspiracy. The law, he said, was concerned most of all with maintaining the power of the ruling elite. Without, I'm not going to go into an, uh, uh, an academic uh, uh, lecture about that, but it's reasonable, sufficient to say that Hayes' thesis inspired a generation of researchers like me who critiqued, revised and challenged his, his, his findings. My own supervisor, Peter King, suggested that, that, that Hay was, Hay's thesis was persuasive, but it was a bit monolithic. The decision made to hang certain offenders and spare others was not, as Hay has argued, seemingly mysterious and arbitrary, but was based on understandable criteria such as the age of the defendants, their previous criminal backgrounds, and the nature of the crimes they committed. So, My work argued that while both Hay and others had made important arguments, they were looking for the role of the justice system in the wrong place. In reality, throughout the 18th century, very few people encountered the law at the, at the top level in front of a judge and jury. Most people went before a magistrate. So, this brings me back to the police courts and my interest in them. Given that so little work has been done on these centres of justice, how can we assess whether they were courts for the people or vehicles for disciplining the working classes? There was no formal summary court system outside the capital in the 18th century. Justices met in a... Um, let me see this. Let's go back, actually. I think I'm one along on my slide. Can't make that go. That's better. No? Can you go backwards, Adam? One more? Brilliant, yeah. You know, yeah. I was wondering if the blinds could be put down. And... That might help, yeah. 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 Um, in London, the city had a semi-formal justicing room at Guildhall and Mansion House, where all the city aldermen served in turn as magistrates. At Bow Street, which is actually the next one, yeah, at Bow Street, um, this image here, Sir John Fielding and his brother Henry had, before him had pioneered their public office served by a small group of paid runners, policing agents that responded to requests from the public to pursue offenders and recover stolen property. These, these are the Bow Street runners. They were a better regulated and less corrupt set of thief takers than people like Jonathan Wilde, which uh, John Rumble has written about. Concern about the state of policing and the role of people, uh, role of entrepreneurial justices in Middlesex led to the passing of the Middlesex Justice Act in 1792, a, an act which laid the foundation for the police courts, which is the subject of this talk. Under this legislation, seven police 
offices were established throughout the capital. Thank you. But not within the City of London, which had its own system. They were modelled on Bow Street with three salaried justices called magistrates after 1839 and a small cohort of paid constables or officers. The courts were opened at Queen's Square and Great Marlborough Street, both in Westminster, Worship Street in Shoreditch, Lambeth Street in Whitechapel, Shadwell Union and Shadwell Union Hall and Union Hall, both in Southwark and Hatton Garden. A further office for the River Police, Thames, was created at Wapping in 1798. These public offices were intended to be self-supporting. The fees and the fines they generated were supposed to be recycled back into the running costs. It's like free justice, if you like. Over time, the magistrates were given more formal powers. And actually, I think, in keeping with most of the history of crime that I've studied, people tend to get and use powers, and legislation catches up with them. In 18, after 1848, an increasing number of offences could be dealt with summarily. So that means without a jury, just by magistrate. Legislation in 1879 consolidated all these statutes and meant that magistrates such as Mr. Dyncourt, we heard earlier, could examine, convict and punish simple larcenies or thefts, embezzlement by employees and receivers of stolen goods, as well as dealing with nearly all juvenile crime. So under the Act, children, which was defined as those aged 7 to 12, and young persons, those aged 12 to 16, could be tried for any offence except homicide and sent to prison for a month or fined up to 40 shillings. We're talking about children here and teenagers. Boys could be birched, while young persons could be asked to pay damages up to 40 shillings or fined up to 25 quid. They could also be imprisoned for up to three months um, with hard labour if the magistrate chose, all without going before a jury. This is just on the decision of the one sitting magistrate. It had quite a lot of power. He could also send them to an industrial school or to a, or to a juvenile reformatory. So Robert Burns was just the sort of offender the courts were expected to deal with. However, as we shall see, just like JPs up and down the country, the police court magistrate had to deal with a great deal of business and complaints, and more complaints other than kettle stealing tearaways. So. Go for it, Adam. Thank you. Cheers. In 1839, an act to regulate the police courts of the magistrate of the metropolis was passed. By then, there were nine courts served by three magistrates, all bar one of them being qualified barristers. And thereafter, all appointments to the bench had to be barristers at law. In London, a single police magistrate, like the guy sitting in this image here, could sit as a bench of justices did elsewhere. In London, then, was a special case. Outside of London, magistrates were not professional lawyers. They were amateurs, as much JPs, many JPs are today. Some had some legal knowledge, but didn't have to have it. As you can probably see from the example of Mr. Dyncourt and Dickens' novel, the police court magistrate was often an unsympathetic character. At Thames in the 1880s, Mr. Lushington was notorious for handing down fines to drunks and having no time for those that opposed the authority of the police, especially those that did so with violence. The Victorian magistrate appears to have very little time for the, for the underclass, or the residuum, as contemporaries term the poorest. But there were, there were occasional glimmers of humanity for all that. D this works, Chris, but then actually... 
it gets a bit dark for me to see what I'm doing. I'll persevere. Don't worry about it. It's okay. okay. You could do a dance if you want, but I don't love Don't worry about it. I will. I will work. I'll just use glow in the dark ink in future. Okay. The Thames Court um, was one of the earliest public offices created after 1792. In 1821, Lambeth Street and Thames were merged, and in 1845, a purpose-built court was established at East Arbor Street in Stepney, I'm sure you're familiar with. Worship Street was the other local court that served the East End, situated as it was in Worship Street, surprisingly, in Shoreditch. Between the two of them, they covered a very large and densely populated area that was amongst the poorest and most criminal in the capital. Whitechapel always, and I'm talking to an audience that knows all this, um, had a huge immigrant population. And one contemporary reporter noted this in his reflections on the various courts he'd visited. At Worship Street, never a morning passes, but two or three alien residents of Bethnal Green or Spitalfields put in an appearance, he said. And then the interpreter of that delightful lingo Yiddish is busy. We don't have records for Worship Street. But those from Thames survive, and in a very interesting series for Ripperologists. They run across the 1880s, and they include registers for 1888. There are two registers. Um, these are held at the um, London Metropolitan Archives in Clark and Farringdon. These two registers appear to overlap slightly, but have slightly different sorts of hearings. I'll say a little bit more about the registers in shortly, but first of all, I'll give you a sense of how these courts operate on a day-to-day -day basis. When Thomas Holmes visited Lambeth Police Court in 1885, he was quite shocked by what he saw. He tells us that, out of a long corridor thronged with policemen, we turned into the waiting room, where prisoners, excepting some few who were in the cells, wait for their turn to appear before the magistrate. There's a long list on the wall, with the name of each prisoner and the number of the officer who has charge of each case, and showing the order in which they have to appear. Most of the cases on a Monday morning were for drink-related offences, something that many of, those, many of those that reported the goings-on at the police courts were at pains to point out. We shouldn't forget that intemperance was a huge social problem in the late 1800s and not something invented by modern binge drinkers preloading on a night out, as many of my students do, which means they're not there for nine o'clock lectures, I think. The graphic newspaper wrote that at Thames, considerable numbers appeared on Monday and Tuesday mornings to be dealt with as drunk and disorderly, or some variation of it. This is a print from, from um, the graphic. It bemoaned the fact that when the, off when the offenders have had their week's wages to pitch away over the pewter-covered counters of the publicans, they invariably ended up in a, on a charge of some sort. The police court was loud and chaotic, with drunks lying around, the destitute desperate for a meal, and businessmen waiting to pay fines. Here is a group of boys charged with gambling, Holmes writes. Here are a couple of 14-year-old girls charged with being disorderly. Here a mother and her babe. Here a young clerk charged with embezzlement. Here the old couple from the workhouse whose every returning holiday from the house finds them in the public house. The cells below were pretty full even at, in the afternoon. Each case was called from the cells and the prosecution brought, for the most part, by a policeman. The defendant stood in the dock while the charge was read and the prosecution evidence was heard. 
Sometimes prosecutions were presented by lawyers, and less frequently the defence lawyer represented the prisoner. The hearings were quick, not surprisingly since a sitting justice might have 50 or more cases to get through. Witnesses were required to swear on the, an oath on the Bible. Green would suggest many people lied in court. Who knew? And mentioned a complaint he heard from a defendant that the justice always believed the police over him. In most cases, the constable is on oath and the prisoner is not. And in, not, and in denying the evidence against him, he is, is at least likely to tell a lie with a view to escape imprisonment as the, wit, as the policeman is to get him convicted, he reported. Prisoners had the option to have their cases heard before a judge and jury, but given the limited sentences available to a police court magistrate, most would have taken their chances at Thames rather than risk a longer sentence at somewhere like Old Bailey. The Victorian prison system was harsh, and I doubt anyone entered it willingly if they could avoid it. Most could expect a fine or imprisonment or the house of correction, in the House of Correction for a few week, days, weeks or months. If the magistrate deemed their offence more serious, he'd send them up. In some courts, defendants readily paid their fines, but at Thames or Worship Street, the nature of the local economy made this harder. Many opted to take their chances inside and work off, as the phrase was, their sentence. Others passed the hat round friends and, and, and family to scrape together the money to avoid incarceration. There seems to have been a sliding scale for those unable to pay their fines that meant imprisonment. So, up to 10 shillings fine, you got seven days imprisonment if you couldn't pay the fine. 10 shillings to a quid, you meant four days and so on. So, in my study of Thames Police Court in the 1880s, I found about a quarter of those coming before the court at court number one at Thames were charged with property offences. Another, another quarter, about 24%, were there for violence of one sort or another. A lot of it spousal violence, domestic violence. While just over 30% came in for some sort of disorderly, drunk and disorderly charge. The remainder were prosecuted for some sort of regulatory offence. More men were prosecuted than women, the balance is about 75-25, and that's normal for all summary courts across the 19th century. On the 8th of September 1888, the day on which Aline Chapman was found murdered in Hanbury Street, we can see, if I can get the slide up, you may not be able to see that actually, that's a bit, bit difficult to view, um, but this is the court register from Thames. There were 16 charges. Four of them were for being drunk and disorderly, three with additional bad language. One found drunk. One person, Andrew Caton, was also charged with indecent exposure. Fill in the blanks. Abraham Barnett was drunk and disorderly but also charged with assault. Mary O'Connor was remanded in custody to face a charge of cutting and wounding. While Henry Kerr was also remanded for stealing India rubber. Barbette, and this, this reflects the, the immigrant population, Barbette Kisler was accused of stealing a watch and chain and Franz Ranger was brought in for attempting to help her escape. <coughs> the lines through the, the, the fines, you might not be able to see that on the right, but the lines through the red lines here suggest to me that these have been paid. They've avoided imprisonment. And the magistrate is written at the bottom, he's Mr Lushington. There were the waiting cases. Uh, another lot came up from, from remand, amongst the remanded prisoners. They'd been held previously and like Mary O'Connor and Henry Kerr now faced a summary hearing which would determine what happened next. James Flinder was committed to jury trial for being found on a roof. One suspects he was, he was being done for, for burglary. 
the reporter and social investigator James Greenwood devoted a chapter of his book on the police courts to the burglary business. He noted that next to murder, there is no crime in which that proportion of the public that seek entertainment at the police court take a lively, more a lively interest than burglary. William Page was also committed to face trial for stealing metal fittings. George Britton and Robert Cooper were convicted of breaking and entering, breaking a lock and damaging a door in the process. They got a 20 shillings fine and plus a requirement to pay damages. They paid up and avoided the 21 days imprisonment they would otherwise have got. John Briggs was an army deserter, or so PC Eyre said. The justice discharged him. Emma Parry was bailed on her recognances to October on a charge of willful damage. Of what? I've no idea. Thomas Fry agreed to appear later that month to face a charge relating to his failure to pay for the upkeep of his illegitimate child. John Hawkins and William Clifton were brought in for assault. The latter was handed a five shilling fine while Hawkins was remanded for a week. Finally on this page, Mary Ann Roland Pink, which is a fantastic name, was accused of the unlawful possession of a pair of trousers <laughs> and held in custody until her case could be investigated. This was the reason people were remanded or bailed to, re to reappear, so that witnesses could be sought and evidence gathered. Sometimes, as was undoubtedly the case in the 18th century courts I studied, the magistrates used the device of remand to effectively punish offenders for a few days or a week by holding them in custody. Um, this was rough justice, this is quick justice. William Dover was sent to prison for a month at hard labour for stealing one pound, four shillings and sixpence. He was 18. Robert Richards stole a pewter pint jug from his local pub and had to pay a two pound fine or risk 14 days inside. George Carlton and Henry Cranfield beat up and robbed a Chinese sailor on West India Dock Road. The magistrates sent them away for two months. Justices were not always, justices were not always consistent nor were their decisions always greatly favoured by the watching court reporters. The Thames Justice Mr Saunders sent Edward Buckley to jail for stealing a pane of glass and committed another young lad to trial for stealing a sausage. Which I actually nearly nicked one from the empty plates on the side deck when I get hungry. Lunch is at quarter to one, isn't it? Uh, quarter to two, I think, yeah. Yet he only fined a driver five shillings for running over a pedestrian in his milk cart. Sometimes, uh, this, is, this is the Thames office, sometimes as you glance through the registers, certain names come up time and time again. Naturally, many of them are common ones. Smith, Williams, O'Connor, Cohen, and so on. They, they reveal the multi-ethnic makeup of Whitechapel and Spitalfields. On Valentine's Day in 1887, the Thames Court Register records that Elizabeth Stride was brought before the sitting justice, accused of being drunk and disorderly, and using foul language. She was fined two shillings and sixpence and released. Catherine Eddowes would have come up before a similar magistrate, having been arrested and unable to stand, so drunk was she on the night that she died. Had the death sergeant let, not let her go when she'd sobered up, she may have avoided her um, fatal encounter in Mitre Square. Alongside all this drunkenness, petty, petty and more serious theft, wife-beating, brawling and juvenile crime, these courts also dealt with a lot of things that nowadays we wouldn't really associate with crime at all. 
At Thames, one correspondent revealed, it would seem as though the labouring population of the East End are far more addicted, far more addicted to pawning their belongings than any other people of their of their station in life. Many of, but many of them lost their tickets and so had to apply to the police court with a form of declaration from the pawn shop. They could swear an affidavit in front of the magistrate and redeem their possessions on payment of principal and interest, just the same as if the proper ticket had been presented. The court also dealt with paupers, those set to work in the workhouse in return for their bed and board. Some of these took the food but refused to pick the oakum or, or break the rocks and they ended up in a police cell awaiting the magistrate's pleasure. I've recently analysed the second register series at Thames, which seems to run concurrently with the first, but mostly deals with quite different business. There is a lot of assault here, but there's little or no theft, or other forms of property offending. The assaults were probably night charges brought up by the police and left for the magistrate to deal with in the morning. Here though, most charges are not brought by the police, but are instead brought by private persons or officers of the Paris or other institutions. So let's look at the register for the 1st of June 1888. The owner of the Britannia Public House, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and the owner of premises at 266 Commercial Road were brought in for, for having dangerous structures by a guy called Charles Roberts, who also, he must have been some kind of official, because he also charged Messrs Greenwood and Company under the Contagious Diseases Act. Now, the Contagious Diseases Act in this case must have been some sort of act to prevent the spread of disease in badly maintained properties and there were plenty of those in Whitechapel. It couldn't have been the infamous CDA, the infamous Contagious Diseases Act of the 1860s that were introduced to regulate prostitution because these were repealed in 1886 and anyway, they didn't apply to London. William Stace brought Messrs Evans to court for neglecting to supply water to his property. And this is really the mundane, of course. Having, presented the, in, having been presented in court, the firm's representative agreed to provide the service and paid a fine of one shillings and two pounds costs. Other cases that day included a waterman prosecuted for being drunk in charge of a boat and prosecutions under the Metal Dealers Act, the Sanitary Act and the Poor Law Amendment Act. James Fletcher was summoned for the maintenance of his lunatic wife. Several assaults were heard and there was one willful damage case. But by far the largest number on that day were 29 people who were fined between one shillings and ten shillings plus two shillings costs for keeping a dog without a licence. Huge numbers were prosecuted under the Education Acts. Huge numbers. I, I found 642 in 1888 alone. And this was something Greenwood investigated in his work in the 1890s. The board school visitor showed Greenwood around his area. They knocked at the door of a, of a Mrs. Bullpit. She interrupted and he was about to ask. She says, why don't Amelia, Jane and Thomas go to school? You will excuse my ignorance, sir, but I should have thought you know the reason. It's the old excuse, I suppose, the inspector said. They have no boots. Exactly so, sir. You see, leastways, you might have heard that boots cost money. And when it is robbed, oh, I beg your pardon, sir, when it, was, when it was legally done out of five shillings, it may go to a mother's heart. But the consequences is her children go barefoot and can't go to school. The mother had previously been fined, you see, five shillings for not sending her kids to school. And, and what would have come up in these acts in the, in the police court. He pointed out that she could apply for parish boots. Pauper boots, she said, I don't want them. 
She said the children had measles, but had not gone to the doctor because of the cost. The frustrated board official said he would call in a week and must see a medical certificate to show they did indeed have measles or he would expect them to go to school or by implication she would go to court again. I've managed to identify over a hundred separate charges under which people appeared in the second court register. After truancy and assault, the highest numbers were for unlicensed dogs, um, prosecutions under the Nuisance Removal Act of 1855, which I'm sure you're all really familiar with the terms of that. This is, this is part of the government's attempt to clear up unhealthy dwellings and prevent the spread of cholera. Dangerous structures, willful damages to property, charges relating from the Small Tenement Act, particularly pertinent to an area, a high let area such as Whitechapel, with such rampant poverty, because this act allowed landlords to get a summons to evict you. Similarly, many prosecutions of landlords for detaining goods is evidence of another sharp practice, that of raising rents and then attempting to possess the goods of those who were unable to pay. Finally, in the top 10 of the 100 or so offences I found were prosecutions under the Vaccinations Act, hearings relating to bastardy, maintenance uh, and desertion, and the fining of vendors for selling adulterated milk, and in one case, coffee. The Thames and Magistrate Police Courts served the communities around them, and the role they had was interconnected with that of the police. Most of the prosecutions were brought by the police, but not all. And plenty of private individuals came along to prosecute those that attacked, stole, or defrauded them, or who'd been denied wages or benefits. Were these people's courts, or courts that ordinary people could use? Or are they better seen as part of the disciplinary machinery of the Victorian state? I think the evidence suggests that they were an important part of the state's disciplinary archipelago, as the French <coughs> philosopher Michael, Michel Foucault would term it. But I don't think this means that they operated exclusively for the state, the parish, or the rich elite. This was a place where ordinary folk could get justice, inverted commas, or at least uh, a hearing, and the anecdotal evidence from the newspapers suggests that something, sometimes they could get financial support as well. Not often, but perhaps often enough to make the effort worthwhile. Finally, my analysis of the Thames Court, far from complete as it is, when considered next to my widest survey of the 19th century press coverage of the police courts that I do in my blog, tells me something else. At a very rough calculation, I would say that the Thames Court <laughs> dealt with around 150 to 200 people each week. That's eight to 10,000 a year. That's a lot of people and a lot of assault, theft, lip, truancy and unpaid dog licences. It's much more than ever reached the Old Bailey, where most studies of crime have con been concentrated. Moreover, the newspapers and the handful of contemporary studies of the police courts are entirely anecdotal. They pick up around a half a dozen cases a day, maybe 30 a week, and usually the more unusual or heartwarming cases. So take this final example from Thames in August 1888, just before the Whitechapel murder series began in earnest. Edward Muir was charged with stealing a songbird, uh, an East India rock miner, to be precise, if you're ornithologists. It belonged to John Hyam, who kept a boarding house on St George's Street. Muir had been in a desperate state when he met Hyam, and the man offered him a place in his house because he took pity on him. The paper reported that the Muir had repaid his kindness by stealing the valuable bird, 
and its cage and selling it for five shillings when it was worth five pounds. Muir claimed it was his to sell and that he had another similar, board, a similar bird on board, a German ship to which he belonged. Mr. Lushington believed the boarding house owner and not the sailor and he sentenced him to six weeks hard labour for the crime. This emphasis on the extraordinary or the topical, the amusing, um, means that any attempt to understand the function of the police courts purely from the newspaper records is partial at best. They offer a snapshot, however, and having been reading them over for the last six months, I think I can begin to see patterns in what they choose to report. But hopefully by the end of this research, and we'll be looking at a couple of years probably, I'll be able to offer a more thorough analysis of these important summary courts based closely on the few records that do survive from Mr. Lushington's court in East Arbor Street. So I'll wrap up there, finish, and hope that that um, gives you a little bit of insight into how these courts operated in policing the community of this area of East London. Thank you. And that was Drew Gray with Policing Whitechapel, the role of the Thames Police Court in the 1880s. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ripperologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all of the talks, and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper East End Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook page, so you can find out a lot of information from there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community and you, our listeners. And so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.